This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I hate to be cliche and talk about women having more empathy, but women do have more empathy. Violence against women should not only be a women's issue, but women do decidedly care more about it. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. In this episode, I spoke with Elizabeth Shackelford, Senior Fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and former career diplomat with the U.S. Department of State. Together, we discussed her time as a Foreign Service Officer in South Sudan, where we looked at her role in extending the United Nations patrol and protection of women against South Sudanese security forces. Please be advised, this episode includes a conversation on violence against women and rape as a weapon of war. Welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast, and welcome to Lizzie Shackelford for being our guest on the podcast today. When I was thinking about this program and how to use it to explore the intersection of gender and national security issues, I instantly thought of you. So I'm so grateful for your time and for the insights you're going to be sharing today. For our listeners, we're going to be changing up the format a little bit. We are going to be using this podcast to explore the extent to which gender and gender equity in decision-making spaces actually changes decision outcomes. And if so, why? If not, why not? There's all sorts of data that exists in the private sector space about how more diverse, equitable teams can improve the decisions and competitiveness of different firms, but they've got a profit margin to assess that against. In the public sector space, that doesn't exist. So we're going to be using this podcast to, among other things, qualitatively explore the dimensions of decision-making in national security and foreign policy spaces, international business spaces, so on and so forth, and sort of see where the analysis leads us. Does gender equity make a difference when it comes to foreign and national security policy decision-making outcomes? So for those of you tuning in that haven't followed Elizabeth's incredible story. Today, she is a senior fellow at the Chicago Council on Foreign Affairs, and she's formerly served as a foreign service officer. She served in Somalia, Kenya, South Sudan, Poland, and DC. Let's stop there for a second. What, Lizzie, led you to a career in foreign policy? I had a fairly winding path to it. It wasn't something that I knew I was interested in, you know, back in college. I didn't know any diplomats growing up. I wasn't raised around the D.C. Beltway. We didn't have family friends who worked in the government. I was raised in Mississippi. So my kind of greatest aspiration growing up was to do some travel, see the world. And I was pretty sure I wanted to be a lawyer. My dad's a lawyer, and that seemed like a natural path. I went to law school, did the law firm thing for a bit, but had some really cool international internships while I was in law school. And that was where I kind of first met diplomats in the flesh. I was in Kosovo and met some first tour officer guys on their unaccompanied tour. I just thought their jobs were super cool. That was my first introduction. It still took me another, I don't know, six six or seven years before I decided to apply for the Foreign Service. 
But in that time, worked as a lawyer doing international trade law, which can be a lot less interesting than that sounds. Shifted over to consulting for USAID projects through Booz Allen. So I did like the private sector development thing for a bit. The more exposure I had to embassies overseas, the more I thought that the State Department route was for me and just got to the natural end of a project I was working on and thought, what the hell, I'll throw my hat in the ring, take the Foreign Service Officer test and see what happens. So I came in around 30, which is kind of fairly average age for the Foreign Service these days. Wow. And then you went to Poland was your first post? Poland was my first, yeah. Right. And but then Juba was your... Your, your top choice, right? Yes. Like that was where you wanted to go. Why did you want to go to Juba at the time? I had done a lot of work in different parts of Africa when I was consulting. I'd done a study abroad in South Africa. So I'd become really interested in the continent. I kind of geographically focused there. I mean, how I ended up getting placed in a lovely European capital for my first tour when I was trying desperately to go to a really hard place. <laughs> you know, you'll have to ask the I don't know, the the powers that be in the State Department. But I was really determined to go to Africa. And the idea of South Sudan, which at the time when I did go for my second tour, the country was only two years old. And it had a tremendous amount of focus from the U.S. government for kind of a small African state. So the idea that I could go and be one of kind of our earliest diplomats working in the world's newest country, helping it become a thriving democracy is what we thought we were doing. That just seemed really appealing. And my thought was, if the U.S. government with good intentions can accomplish anything in a hard, new, developing country, surely we can do it here where we have this much focus from Congress and the White House and the State Department and a lot of resources. So I thought that it was a place where I could see U.S. foreign policy at its best. That isn't exactly what it turned out to be. Yeah, and we'll get into that in a minute. Walk me through... When you get there, what was your portfolio and your role within the embassy? I was a second tour officer at the time. So that's still an entry-level officer. You're in your kind of junior officer phase. And I had first signed up for the position of the junior political officer. And then a few weeks before I went out, I was told that I was also the consular section. So the consular (laughs) section being, you know, what few visas we were doing at the time and American citizen services. So mostly just emergency services there. But my predecessor had impressively set up this makeshift consular section that was just himself in a closet off the cafeteria. And uh, (laughs) that is what I inherited when I first arrived. He'd been gone for over a month and nobody even knew the code to get into the closet. It was a big and daunting task. And both as the junior political officer, I covered human rights, which would become a really, really big issue. And then as the consular section at the time, I was basically the one to deal with any American citizen crises. And you might not think there are a lot of American citizens in a place like South Sudan, but between dual nationals who had gone to the U.S. as refugees during the last war and then returned when the country was at peace and humanitarian workers, aid workers and missionaries, we had a lot more American citizens in the country than than I think we at first expected. You arrive, getting up to speed. And then what were the macro issues that the U.S. was dealing with at the time that you were involved in? So the big issues were, I mean, there, there were huge issues. This country was new. They had all, everything from trying to revamp a constitution to trying to plan out elections that were you know, intended for a couple of years down the road at that point, 
to, I mean, trying to build up the basic structures of a state. Most of my portfolio focused on human rights, which there were a tremendous amount of human rights abuses being conducted, primarily by state security forces, also the police, everything from rampant arrests and detentions that were illegal, violence in other parts of the country that were being spurred on and promoted by the government. So you had the government in place that had a number of conflicts that it was either directly involved in or kind of proxy involved in many of them driven by kind of claims to power in different parts of the country, but with ethnic undertones. Just a lot of impunity, quite frankly, everywhere from the wilder, kind of less accessible northern parts of the country to just rampant crime often committed by police and security services in Juba itself. Well, so this brings us to the decision that you thought we could talk about today. You were there, you're the junior political officer, and the decision or the issue is about what was happening outside of an internally displaced persons camp. So can you walk us through what was happening there? Yeah, to just kind of lay the scene a little bit. A few months after I arrived, the country just exploded into civil war. So I had been there for a few months and I had been watching security services, soldiers, presidential guard forces, all all sorts of different uniforms, both in Juba and outside of Juba, get away with violence against civilians. And so this was an issue that we've been raising over and over again, but that I had really been trying to draw attention to at a time when the U.S. government was frankly more interested in trying to kind of patch together political resolutions between the major players. And this was in the lead up to the Civil War beginning. You had a lot of political rifts that people were worried, you know, in the U.S. government and otherwise would break out into violence. So December of that year, 2013, violence does break out. The country completely melts into a civil war. The offenders um, at the outset were security services under the president. Of course, in my mind, we had been watching them act with impunity for months and months and months to the point where they just decided that, you know, where the president decided that he could get away with this. The city of Juba faced several days of absolute ethnic cleansing at the beginning of the war. You had the government, the president's forces and security forces were largely the Dinka ethnic group. And who had been targeted in the streets in the days after the outbreak of the war were Nuer men primarily. So we're talking your classic case of checkpoints set up all around the city and roving groups of men in uniform going door to door, just lining up Nuer men and executing them. This is the backdrop to what created these IDP camps inside Juba, you're basically kind of internal refugee camps inside the city center. And what had happened in the initial days of the war is that tens of thousands of primarily new era people had fled to the United Nations compounds. There were two of them in town. The largest number had fled to the one that was near the airport and not too far from our embassy. And then others had fled to another part of town that was closer to the traditionally new era neighborhoods. So you have tens of thousands of internally displaced people who just flood the United Nations compounds. And the UN sets up these very kind of makeshift facilities to house and try and take care of tens of thousands of people who have fled for their lives in the face of government-sanctioned violence at that time. Fast forward to the decision we're talking about. I mean, the, the entire kind of environment surrounding this is that you have a city that's very on edge where a certain segment of the population, a large segment of the population, feels that they are not safe outside of walls that protect them from government services, government soldiers. So there is a lot of violence that happens in between the beginning of the war and this period, which is around, if I recall correctly, it was around April. So a few months into the war, at this stage, you have these makeshift camps that are not big enough, they are not well supplied enough. And IDPs, 
women because they feel that if men leave the IDP camp, they're being accused by the government forces of being full of spies and people who are against the government. They're being accused. Oh, interesting. Yes. So the government is saying all along that these IDP camps are these clusters of rebels who are sneaking in weapons and they're going to attack the government from the inside. So this is the propaganda that's being pushed out about these places. So you've got a lot of tension between the UN and all of the diplomatic forces and the government of South Sudan because they're claiming that they are full of enemies. And as it turns out, it is very dangerous for IDPs to leave the camp. So they don't send the men because the men would be slaughtered. At least this is the perception after the ethnic cleansing that had happened at the beginning. And so if you need things, which the people inside do, they don't have enough access to clean water. They don't have enough like toiletry facilities. They don't have enough food. They're going out to try and, you know, make a little money doing trading. So you send the women because the women might get raped, but they probably won't get killed. And these are the types of calculations that they're having to make on the inside of these IDP camps. I just have to reiterate again, this is blocks from the U.S. Embassy. This is not far away from where we are. So we're very well aware of what's going on. And there's been this constant debate over, well, at what point in this war, if Juba is relatively safe, do we close the IDP camps and make people go back into the city? And that didn't happen for years, actually. So this stage is still very early. You have a lot of humanitarian assistance on the inside, but there's just not enough there. So some humanitarian workers that I knew and worked with closely for a couple of reasons, my kind of combined job as human rights officer and then also consular officer gave me kind of two entry points to the camps. I was going to check out frequently to go assess what the situation is human rights wise for the occupants of the camp and what the situation for them was. And I was also going frequently to check in on and try and assist American citizens who ended up in the IDP camps. And you had a lot of dual nationals who did. So we were frequently going to try and help them either get out of the country or get assistance if they needed it. So I was very familiar with the camps and spent a lot of time working with people who were assisting the camps. And of course, humanitarian workers have to stay independent in order to be able to have the access that they have to both sides in often these situations. So they're not the ones who are likely to raise concerns about bad acts by government actors. Some of them confided in me that there was an issue that outside the gates, outside the wall, the fence of the IDP camp in the one that was close to the airport, Women would leave to do laundry, fetch you know, food and materials and that type of thing. They would leave and they were routinely getting raped by soldiers who worked for the South Sudanese government, including presidential security guards. I mean, this is like a mini military base, basically. And the UN has peacekeeping forces there and they are patrolling the camp. And so they have guard towers at different places. And there is this one particular hut that my contacts told me they basically called the rape hut. I remember it. It was blue. Wow. And they described to me what was happening. And the women were coming out. They had no choice. They had to go out to get supplies and work and that type of thing. And they were getting dragged into there and raped. All that the folks running these IDP camps wanted was for the UN to patrol out there so that women could be fairly safe within the perimeter. And they were asking for it, but they weren't getting any traction. So they came to me, this long story to build up to, they reached out to me to see if the U.S. government could do anything about it. You know, did we have the kind of influence on the U.N. to be able to press them to do something? Now, this isn't something that's directly tied to U.S. national security interests in the country. And as we often see, the threat of potentially trying to attack the IDP camps would raise alarm. But the fact that Women are getting, you know, sexually assaulted when they leave was a tragedy, but not exactly something inhibiting any of our national security interests there. Right. Except possibly indirectly. I was Except gonna, so indirectly, yes. If we could sort of digress for a moment, 
What was your impressions about this gender-based violence and its relation to the conflict generally? Was it symptomatic of this culture of impunity? Was it fueling or creating the conditions for more conflict? Anything different? What were your views on that at the time? Indirectly, it absolutely was one of the, I mean, it was, it was a result and a driver of conflict. It was also a sign of the ethnic dimensions, you know, the kind of ethnic right. cleansing related dimensions. And as we've seen, and the South Sudan conflict was one of the earliest conflicts where, you know, the UN declared definitively that rape was being used as a weapon of war. I mean, it wasn't just something that happened to occur. It was part of the both result and cause of kind of demeaning this particular ethnic group. You know, at the time, we were not aware of it being used strategically, but in the months to come, it became very clear that it was much more than just soldiers acting out, which is often what it's blamed on. Right. It is. It's sort of like, oh, these are bad apples. But actually, there's something more intentional and deliberate. Absolutely. It seems to me that by refusing to acknowledge that, we're missing out on key analytic dimensions of these conflicts. Right. Absolutely. And it has a psychological impact, not only on the women who are directly affected, but on the entire communities that cannot keep their women safe. Right. And this idea that they are then shamed. I mean, we have this challenge across a lot of cultures around the world where women who are raped are often blamed for it or suffer then the kind of social outcast nature that happens. And that's being done very intentionally in order to basically harm those communities. So it's a much bigger picture than simply the violence committed against these women. I think this is one of the challenges to addressing these types of issues is if you see it only as what we're trying to do is to secure safety for these individual women, it's often seen as something that can go by the wayside. But if you see it in terms of the bigger context, both of the ethnic dimension of a conflict in terms of you know, kind of various steps and stages of ethnic cleansing, which this was part of. And you also see it in terms of the sense of impunity, which I think does help drive continued conflict. The more that they are able to get away with, the more that they're going to try to get away with too. So I think on both of those elements, it becomes a factor in a much bigger conflict situation. And if you're trying to resolve the conflict and you're ignoring elements like that, you're really doing a disservice to your own overall peace efforts. Right. So back to this decision. So, so you've been alerted to the rape hut. It was horrifying. How did you begin to make the case to the ambassador that something needed to be done? And what was the reaction? The initial reaction was, well, this is more fodder for our cables going back to Washington to talk about the declining human rights situation in the country. And that was, of course, at this time where constantly gathering information about human rights abuses in theory that this is to assist at future efforts at accountability and transitional justice. So that was kind of the initial reaction was, well, we're documenting this for those purposes. And it didn't necessarily occur to anyone in my leadership chain that this was something that the U.S. was supposed to address. At the time, there was a difficult relationship, a lot of friction between the U.S. and the United Nations mission there. The U.N. had the most difficult relationship because, like everyone, it needs the permission of the governing authority to remain and function in the country. So with the U.N. in these situations, it is often very hesitant to push back on the government, which it needs the authority from to do any work whatsoever. So there was a bit of a thought that the U.N. knows what it needs to do and what it can do to function. So this is a U.N. issue. It's not a U.S. issue or a broader issue. 
Mm-hmm. So it's like a bureaucratic response. Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, to be fair, Susan Page was our ambassador there. She was certainly sympathetic. And she, like many women, you know, understands that human rights element and understands that it's connected to broader issues. But there's a hierarchy of what you can address in a situation like this. And managing to reduce rapes at the rape hut outside the UNIDP camp is not at the top of the list when you're trying to navigate a peace process between different actors. What we're often told, both by leadership at the embassy and back in Washington, is you you have to make peace between the people who are fighting. You don't make peace with your friends. So you have to pick your battles. And this was not one of the battles that people were keen to to pick. Right. So you bring this to the embassy. What was the ultimate decision that was taken? I think my angle at the time was to demonstrate how little effort it would take on our part to basically shame the UN to extend the patrols. Mm -hmm. It was a small ask. And so my approach was this would be a very small ask that would build accountability and reduce violence in a manner that we hadn't really been able to do. The most likely scenario would be that it's simply something that we would have ignored because it didn't merit very high on the priority list. What I was able to do effectively was make the case that I wasn't asking for a big lift. What I was asking for was for us to gather other diplomatic leaders in Juba and to kind of collectively come together and ask the UN to extend the patrols. It was a specific ask. It was not a heavy lift and with potential concrete results that could both help actual individuals and impose a little bit more accountability. Right. And also linked to the bigger strategic picture of the war, right? Small lift, but with possibly enormous dividends. There was, frankly, a lot of doubt that we'd be able to convince the UN to do much at all. It was a matter of kind of downplaying. It was less talking about, well, this would be a major strategic win than just saying, isn't this something small we can do when we are hitting walls in every other direction? That was largely the approach. You know, I felt like trying to make the case that this would be a big win for human rights and for our overall strategic goals was harder to do than just say, can't we, the United States, do this one thing and talk about how concrete it was? So Right. Then just take the oxygen out of the issue by making it smaller and just making a small concrete game. That's fascinating. To what extent do you think that your being a woman played a factor in this decision and its outcome? I mean, I think it played a huge role in the fact that I took it up at all. Right. I think it played a very big role in why the issue was brought to me. And you you and I have discussed this some. (laughs) I hate to be cliche and talk about women having more empathy, but women do have more empathy. It's a gross generalization, but it's a gross generalization for a reason. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Cliches exist for a reason. (laughs) And and again, violence against women should not only be a women's issue, but women do decidedly care more about it. Well, exactly. It was a way to target men in the conflict. It was a way to disrupt communities. So there's a gendered dimension to this, but it's not just feminism here. It's an attack against the entire community. Right. And using gender as a way to do so. Exactly. So I I think that because being a woman, I understood that better. I think that I took the offenses more seriously. I will say, I mean, my immediate boss is a man. I mean, he, he was horrified when he heard and he was very supportive of trying to take this up. But I do believe that being a woman is essential for having the empathy and the less compartmentalized view of these conflicts. I mean, think about your own everyday personal life. And again, Gross generalizations, not true 100% of the time, but at least in my life. I mean, I am a less compartmentalized person than my fiance. 
who thinks about things in straight lines and tunnels. And that can be a great benefit when you're trying not to get distracted by issues that are peripheral. But when those issues are actually integral and related, I think having that more integrated perspective, you know, the same way that like we can't get over something that annoyed us when we were answering emails, when we've shifted over to a more important issue, like an annoying email response from someone will bother me later in the day. But it also (laughs) enables me to calculate in why all of these different issues actually do impact each other. I think the empathy and the non-compartmentalized view were essential in me seeing this differently. Thinking back to why this reaction was this way. I had raised so many human rights issues that we had been unwilling to address or to prioritize. And I had taken such a dogged approach to trying to raise issues and trying to get the U.S. government to push back on the government of South Sudan and block some of these violations. At this point, I think it was also seen as this is a thing we can do. And I'd been dogged about it. And so there was a real willingness to help me get this human rights win. And I'm sure there's an emotional element behind that as well. You know, there was this exhaustion of seeing so much suffering and not being able to address it. And for people who are at the top and have primarily that higher level view, it's a lot easier if you have that higher level view to skim over the everyday harms. And so it was my job just to constantly bring those everyday harms up. Right. We almost forget that war is a human endeavor, right? And it affects humans. And so this is a, a key center. And one of the things that I find fascinating about your experience is that it's not only that you were predisposed to thinking about these issues in a more holistic manner, but also that locals reached out to you. You could be seen as the trusted conduit and reveal a blind spot that apparently existed within the embassy towards this particular instance. Yeah, and I think that building that trust was essential. And it's very hard to do in a conflict situation. I'd spent a lot of time in the IDP camps taking testimonials and sending these back. I mean, this whole issue I had captured, including photographs to send back to Washington, and share this story. And it got attention. Now, in Washington, it didn't get so much attention that Secretary Kerry was going to send a note to the UN about it. But there was a real reaction to it that was not able to secure real human rights action from Washington, but did give us a permission to act on specific issues like that from the embassy level. I remain frustrated at how little we were able to do on the policy level. And that does get back to what is the impact of having women's perspectives on these things? We often tend as women in this field to not prioritize the issues like human rights and violence against women, you know, gender-based violence, because it feels like the soft thing. And we're always trying to overcome that baseline that women are soft. Right. It doesn't mean that you always take that path either. I mean, I think that you're able to view or at least in my case, I was able to view human suffering through different lenses as well. I mean, I also questioned why we supported so much humanitarian assistance in a way that I think did prolong the war and often does. So it wasn't just every time we have to help people in harm's way. That's not the women's perspective. But thinking about the longer term ramifications 
of the violence that we allow and the violence that we enable, I think is part of that multitasking perspective that women sometimes have better than men. Right. It's almost the third rail, right? To, yes. to talk about gender, especially as a woman at times, because the discourse in our field is so very dominated by things like orders of battle and realpolitik. In many, many, many instances, a lot of that discourse is quite appropriate. But what are we losing by not paying attention to gender, right? What are we losing in our analysis that could help us get to better solutions? I think it's an interesting question. And I think one of the biggest problems is that we see it as a trade-off between security and human rights or security and our values. I do not see it as a trade-off. I see those values, I see human rights as essential elements in long-term security. And this gets back to a lot of like the short-term security versus long-term security issue. Some of what we supported in South Sudan, as in many places, was what will be the shortest path to ending violence soonest. And by ending violence, in that case, we mean war. We don't mean ending all of the violence. You ask folks in the U.S. government if South Sudan's at war, and they'll say, no, we secured all these peace deals, and this one's still in place, and we're just working out the details of implementing the, the peace accord. You go to South Sudan, and it's a place where most people in the country still very much feel at war. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for your time, Lizzie. By the way, for those listening, I strongly recommend checking out Lizzie's fantastic book, The Descent Channel, American Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age. It is a candid assessment of where we are, our failure to apply meaningful conditionality to our aid, and some of the negative strategic impacts that those decisions have had. I'm a big believer that moving forward requires honest accountability and assessment of where we've been. And so in that vein, I think that The Descent Channel is an extraordinarily important book for people to pick up and contemplate seriously. Thank you for writing that. And thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I knew it would be. <laughs> thank you so much. And it's just been a delight to have you here. Thank you so much, Kathleen. It's great to be here. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.